Thank you, my brother. We're going to be looking at the chart. The, the kind of thing that you would think the book of Revelation would have, a chart. We're going into the chart now. Now, before we get into the chart, we're going to read the Scripture and prepare ourselves in chapter 4 for what I think is going to happen and what we're going to see in the chart. So today's message is entitled, I Will Show You What Must Take Place. How many are ready to see what God has showed us? Okay, so Revelation chapter 4, we're going to read this whole chapter today. It's not very long, verses 1 through 11. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Now, this right here can kind of just get you into how I interpret the book of Revelation. I believe that that's a door, okay? I believe that's a door. He's seen a door. Now, this is where people just get deep in Revelation. They don't even take that as a door. They're going to go right there and be like, the door is Jesus. We come through the door and all of these things. That's just, just to remind you, and I said this at the beginning of Revelation, unless I have a reason to take something symbolically, I'm taking it somewhat literally. Does everybody get that? Okay, like half of you get it. Lord have mercy. Do I got to start this thing over again? I feel like every time I preach this, I got to give an introduction because, you know, you guys look at me crazy, you know, and then some preacher's going to come, the door is Jesus, and, and then you're going to get all hyped, and then you're going to come back to me and be all disappointed. You're going to be like, why didn't you tell me Jesus was the door, pastor? Why didn't you tell me that? Well, the reason is, is we would spend the next 20 years here di dissecting every supposed symbol. If everything is just a symbol within a symbol within a symbol, you know, then we're just going to get lost in this book, Okay. The idea that I think we're supposed to pick up here that there are some things that we're supposed to take at face value, literally, and just walk through it. Now, once again, if you want to debate this, if you want to debate this, I have a rule about this. Where do you have to take me if you want to debate the book of Revelation? That's right. And who's going to do most of the talking? You. So you could treat me out to Red Lobster and say, oh, I disagree with that. The door is Jesus. I'm going to be like, mm, okay, just keep going. More butter sauce, please. What else do you think? Okay, let me get another main lobster, please. You know, because I'm not here, honestly, to get lost in this. So I just, everybody just understand this. When, when I believe, well, I mean, when I read this and it says, John, he looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. I believe that's what he's seen. That's, that's just what I believe. That's how I'm going to interpret the rest of all of this, okay? And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Somebody say, after this. Thank you. Uh, brothers, would you grab my laptop out there for me? Because uh, I got a bunch of scriptures, and I want you guys to be able to see some depth into this. I'm going to just bring the laptop, because otherwise it's going to be too much for me to have to remember up here. Everybody say, come up here. Okay, now, this is where, that, that right here is where you're going to have to make a decision and go, do you want to take the premise that we as pre Tribulation rapture, folks. Thank you, sir. Uh, I'm just going to have both. Thank you. Yep. A little bit of everything today. I'm going to be the mad professor, okay? Are you guys ready for this? Okay, come on. I mean, are you ready there to beep, boop? You ready for that? Okay, because I, <laughs> I got the charts. I got my laptop. I got the Bible. We're going to bring this together up here. We're going to do this, okay? And we're going to do it with grace, as you can see. Okay, now... This is, this is key. This is the key. Somebody say, this is key. 
Thank you. This is key to understanding the premise that we as pre-tribulation rapture folks believe. We are pre-tribulation. That means we believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. That is going to come up in the book of Revelation, tribulation. Okay, it's going to happen. We believe that we get taken to heaven. We believe while we as believers are in heaven, the tribulation starts. So we are pre-tribulation rapture folks in this church. Personally, you can be whatever you want. This is what we are here. Remember, we do not divide over this. Can I hear an amen to that? I, I am borrowing this chart from John Hagee, but if anybody here is a John Hageeite and wants to rebuke everybody else that doesn't agree with John Hagee, we ain't having that here, okay? You can discuss it here. You can debate it here. But if you're going to throw everybody under the bus, we're not doing that because, man, we are busy on the streets. We don't have the privilege. We don't have the privilege or the opportunity in this generation as Christians to divide over this. We're being arrested for the gospel right now. Does everybody get that? Churches are being fenced up in Canada. We do not have the opportunity to sit and draw lines and fight about this. I don't even think that would be right in any time in church history, but I'm just saying not now. Let us not divide over this. If, if, they don't, if you meet a Christian that doesn't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, but they believe in Jesus, the death, burial, resurrection, you know, they believe in the Trinity, they believe in salvation by grace through faith, let's celebrate them. Can I get an amen? Okay. So this is pivotal for us, and the reason why it is is because we believe that language is the language of being brought up into heaven as the church. Why do we believe that? It says come up here. We believe that that means now John is going up to heaven. Who else do we think would go up to heaven with him if all of this stuff is about ready to happen? We believe the church. Why is it we think that? Because the church is no longer mentioned. The church is no longer mentioned as we go through the book of Revelation, all of tribulation. The church is only mentioned coming back with Jesus at the battle of Armageddon and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the only time, the bride coming down with Jesus. So between this part of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, to where he comes back with the bride in Revelation, uh, I believe it's chapter 18 or 19, we don't see the church being mentioned. So that's where we go with that. Now, let's go to the scriptures to see where we get the idea of the rapture doctrine and the belief in that. Because it's not going to be mentioned here. It just says, come up here. So let's go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, brothers. Thank you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul is telling the believers not to be discouraged when people die. And he says this is the reason because Jesus is going to come back and get the believers who have passed away and those of us who remain. And now we know that this is not his second coming because there's things that's going to happen after that. There's things that are going to continue to happen after that. Now, some people still believe in the rapture, but they believe in the rapture after the tribulation that it's synonymous with Jesus' second coming. And we don't believe that because there's signs and wonders, or rather judgments and tribulation that come after our leaving. And so you, you can, once again, see it from different ways, but I think this way answers it more adequately. So let's look at it here. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus 
says, those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will certainly not proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in where? In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be forever with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So where do we end up after this catching away? Where do we end up? In the air, in the clouds. Has he finished all of his work upon the earth? No, and so as we look at the timeline and we're trying to piece together, when is this event happening? Because lo and behold, in the Bible, there's not a timeline, okay? So we're doing our best here, folks. Remember the Jews had 4,000 years to prepare for Jesus' first coming, and how did that go for them? How well did they do with that test, okay? So we have 2,000 years now to prepare for Jesus' second coming. You know, thankfully, we don't have the opportunity to crucify him, okay? But let's just be ready for him in whatever time, season, or whatever um, uh, timeline he comes. And so you can be post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, or you can be pan-trib that it's all going to pan out after the tribulation, you know, right? Okay, so here's what we get. The trumpet is sounding, we're going up, and we're meeting Christ in the air. It doesn't say that then we rule and reign with him on the earth. And so this is where, and it may not be strong enough evidence for you. That's okay. Trust me, I've wrestled with it as, um, you know, just kind of be transparent with you. Between this and post-tribulation are the ones that I've thought about the most, and that just means He comes only one time, reveals himself, and then everything is wrapped up. But here, it doesn't say that everything is wrapped up. So I do believe that we go with him into the air. So he's coming from heaven into our atmosphere, like he comes into the atmosphere of the earth. And then we go back up. So the the coming down is not setting his foot on Mount Olives. It's not doing all of that. Now, I've wrestled with it because it doesn't seem like Um, in every place where I learn about the rapture, that it says everything that's going to happen after this. And so sometimes I wonder, is the after this moment here, is that the judgment and the new heavens and new earth, or is it the tribulation? So I have to go to other passages to piece it together. So if if I'm just going to be transparent, for being pre-trib, I'm probably about like 51% pre-trib, I'm probably 49% post-trib. And I know for those, a lot of you here who were, who were brought up, you know, pre-tribulation, that might be a little bit scary for you going through the tribulation, but there's a lot of scary stuff that Christians are going through right now, okay? And so we ought not to just hide behind the pre-tribulation rapture because we don't want to go through any bad stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff happening right now in places like Iran, in places like North Korea, in places like South these days, you were Christians and in China as well are being persecuted. So I have gone back and forth, but the the evidence, the 51% that I have, I have examined it a thousand times. So I don't see myself changing anytime soon. I think if I would have changed, I would have changed a, a while ago because the more I study it, I feel like I'm going up in percents, you know? And it's it's not much. It's not like I go from like at one point I was like 50.1. Like in Bible college, I was like 50.1 to 49.9. That was in Bible college. And then over the years, like seriously, it's been like a like a slow little journey up, like 
50.2, you know, and then now I'm just being transparent as well. I have believed it more than I ever have before. And trust me, I've heard all of the debates. They're online. You can watch them. As, as a matter of fact, down here at the, um, the bottom of our notes, I have John Hague. You can listen to him. And 100, he's like 100% on all of this stuff, okay? He's 100% on stuff that's not even in the Bible, and he's still writing books about it, okay? So I definitely do not agree with him on everything. But he is like, there, there is no compromise with him on any situation he is talking about when it comes to Revelation. Like, he feels like he's got it perfectly, perfectly 100%. And I wish that I could be that much confident, like televangelist, 100% on this, but I'm not. I wish I could write four books and change it all the time, you know, and whatever. But, but here's where the scholars disagree, and that's where I have to be honest when I listen to these guys, and I'm like, okay, I see a lot of what you're saying. Like, these guys are not like Oompa Loompas. They're not just novices. Like, they're very serious in the word, and they're like, you got to look at this, and you got to see this. And I'm like, okay. And so that's why, like I said, when it comes to the pre-tribulation, I'm not I'm not 100% on it. What I am 100% on is that I believe all of this is future. There's one minority position in the body of Christ, and that is that all of this took place during the time of 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was invaded and the temple was destroyed, except for the new heavens and new earth, the millennial reign right here, except for that, they believe all of this is the symbols of what happened during the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, that the Antichrist was one of the rulers of that time. And they're a minority position, but believe it or not, you'll hear about some good Christians that actually believe things like this. Um, and, and you'll be like, man, I'm surprised you believe that. And then when you look back in history, some of my heroes actually believe this. John Wesley, probably my favorite hero of the past. John Wesley believed that all of this was fulfilled and that the millennial reign was symbolic, that that, that was the Christian age, and that all we're waiting for now is for Jesus to come and rule reign. And that in actuality, the millennial reign will turn into us ruling and reigning over nations. That's actually what they believe, that we would rule and reign over nations eventually. And you could see where that got the church in trouble, where they believed they were going to rule and reign, right? Just think of the, some of the things the church did. Even the Puritans. We're not just talking about the Roman Catholics. We know at times they were definitely bat nutty. But what, what did the Puritans do when they thought they were going to rule and reign, right? Now, I think some of it's overblown by our liberal friends, but, but some of it is actually true. Like, they, they really believe that, that, that if you're going to have tyrannical rule, that you were going to rule by the Puritan standard that you had to live by the Bible. And, and, and the Bible was, a lot of it was taken serious, burning witches and things like that. And so once again, I don't take that, that approach. I actually take an Anabaptist approach. I take a more Baptist, not a Puritan approach. And the Baptists, if you study about them and where they came from, they were more like the Amish as we see today. They were more against us trying to bring government into the church to the point that they you still see the Amish today. I grew up around the Amish. The Amish traditions represent to us a Christianity that does not believe in the church ruling the state. Now, they take it to the extreme and think the church should have no input into the state and that we should all be on basically farms, you know, living in the you know, 1600s and speaking German. But, but there's a middle ground in between there. So I think there's, you know, a middle ground. But if you're asking me in the time of the Reformation when we're breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church and we're trying to figure out a better way of understanding church and state, I 
I think there's a middle ground between the, uh, the Catholic position and, and the Puritan position. I think there's a middle ground that we're trying to do as evangelicals. And even then, people think we get too involved in politics. But how many are glad Christians are involved in politics? Amen. Okay, so when we look at the passage in Revelation, based on the other scriptures that we're using to interpret Revelation, because let's just pause here, another helpful hint. If we're not using other scriptures to interpret Revelation, we will be pretty much lost in what in the world is going on here. There isn't a lot of what we would call didactic teaching in Revelation. There's just like an understanding of main events, and you're supposed to plug in all of the teachings of the epistles. So and that's where it gets a little bit messy, because do I plug in here the rapture, or is this just John coming up to heaven to see what happens next. I think in the timeline, I'm supposed to plug in the rapture. Now, that's up to you whether you want to plug in the rapture here. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. What do I think the door is? I think the door is a, a door. Thank you. And the voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And see, there, there's our symbol. His voice was what? Like a trumpet, like a trumpet, not a trumpet, it was like a trumpet. Everybody get that? Okay. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. After what? After he had just spoken about the seven churches and all that God was going to do in the church age. Now I'm going to show you, this is how I'm interpreting it, after the church age. As you are going to see this, John, this is a different age coming upon the earth. This is no longer the church age. This is going to be the age of judgment. And I believe there's different ages in the Bible. This is going to be an age of tribulation. This is going to be a time period of that. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So we see the Spirit, and now we're going to be introduced to the Father. Remember, the book always reveals to us who God is. We've seen the Trinity from the very beginning. Now we're going to see the Trinity revealed this way. I was in the Spirit. Now I see the Father. He doesn't say exactly the Father here, but we're going to plug in the doctrine of the Father as we see the Lamb in the next chapter. So I'm just kind of skipping you ahead so you can know who we're going to see here. In verse 3, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow shone like an emerald circle around the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Here's another another evidence why we believe this is the end of the church age because we believe that the 12 leaders of Israel, whoever God has picked out from each tribe are there, we believe the 12 leaders of the church are there, which is the 24 elders. So we believe that this symbolizes the kingdom of God that is now in heaven because both covenants have been fulfilled and now they are our leaders and we're now going to watch with them what's going to happen. So around the throne, 24 elders. And just to give you an idea, just on one of my commentators, do you know how many different explanations there are for the 24 elders being around the throne, who they are? 18. 18. This is what theologians get paid to do, okay? They get paid to come up with another explanation. I don't even know how there could be 18. I can only think of like maybe four or five. At some point, you're like, it's the Fonzie, it's this this person, it's the, 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 the number one hit stars of the 60s. I don't even know. How do you get to 18 different explanations of who they are? Okay, I just take a more, more simple approach because we know 12, we, are, we already know that the Bible says that Jesus told the apostles, minus Judas, and I believe that's replaced with Paul, uh, that they are going to be on 12. 
12 thrones. Now, he already told them that. Like, we know that. Okay, so who are the other 12? We don't really know. I think they're the uh, patriotic leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's my personal thought. But what we see is significant here is they're around the throne of the Father, and they're laying their, th- uh, their crowns at his, uh, at his feet. Now, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And how many remember when we talked about the seven spirits of God? Okay, four of you. Okay, do I need to review the seven spirits of God? Okay, just very simply, the seven spirits of God are the seven manifestations of God's Holy Spirit. Okay, let's go to, I I believe it's Isaiah chapter 14. Let's go there so you guys can just see it. Don't take my word for it. We always have new people coming with us. We're so glad you're here. I believe it's Isaiah 14. And, you know, some people have gotten in trouble, like Benny Hinn, sadly. He thought that now there was like seven Plus the Father and the Son, so there's nine, like nine entity, like in the triunity three. Like he tried to add that into the Godhead, which was silly. And so don't do that. Don't try to add that into the Godhead. Let's go to Isaiah 16. It's not Isaiah 14. If not, I'll look up and look at two of my notes because this is what happens when I get off the notes. Is it Isaiah 11? Yes, Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up out of the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So here's the way to count seven from what we know as the Masoretic text here. In the Septuagint, the Spirit of the Lord does not count as one of the seven. They add at the end the Spirit of guidance. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy here on how we're going to count the seven. But let's just for the sake in this version count with the Spirit of the Lord. And we're going to use the menorah like we see here. We're going to think of seven like this. We're going to think of one main one right in the middle and then the three on each side, okay? So the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Then the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of the knowledge of God, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Everybody with me there? Wasn't that pretty neat how we just learned about that? And those seven spirits rest upon Christ. They rest upon Christ. And if we go back here to uh, put in there for me, brothers, Revelation chapter 1, we'll see that he's interacting with those spirits. And actually, uh, he's going to have at some point, as we get to the lamb, he's going to have them on him. So you're going to be able to see that as well. But we'll just go to Revelation chapter 1, and you'll be able to, to tie it all together. These are concepts that we've already gone through. And this is what I really like about the book of Revelation, is that it helps us by reminding us of these symbols. So here we see in Revelation chapter 1, starting around verse 4, grace and peace to you from who is and who was and who is to come. We believe that's the Father. And the seven spirits before his throne. That's where we're at now. We're at the throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Everybody see the Trinity there? Okay. Now, when we go to our passage here in, in Revelation, we are told that this obviously is God because we're going to see the creatures worshiping him. And let me just skip ahead right here. And he's going to be told, holy, holy, holy by these Christians, uh, by these creatures rather, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But let me just skip ahead real quick. Go to, uh, put in here Isaiah chapter uh, 6 for me, brother, and then also to the next one, and you guys can turn there with us if you want, put in John chapter 12, because I want to show you that not only is the Father called God, 
said to be holy, 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 but also Jesus is called God and said to be holy, holy, holy. Because sometimes when people read Revelation and they see that the Father is more clearly at this point being, being called God, worshiped as God, even though the Lamb does as well, they think that that means the Lamb is not also God. So I just want to show you right here. Here is Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees the Lord. Who did he see in verse 1? I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on what? A throne. Now, other than the 24 thrones of the elders, how many thrones are there in which the Lord sits on and which angels fly around? Only one. This is what a lot of Christians don't even know. The Father and Son share the same throne. Did you get John up there as well? Okay, perfect, perfect. Now put in here Revelation uh, chapter 22. I just want to show you, there is only one throne in heaven, but the Father and Son share the throne, and from the Holy Spirit, uh, from that throne comes the Holy Spirit. Then verse 1 of chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, that's the Holy Spirit, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So does everybody see how this is going to end? The Father and Son on the throne and the Holy Spirit coming out from it. In chapter 4, because some Jehovah Witnesses or others who deny the deity of Christ will want just to stop there and say, see, we just see the Father on the, the throne. We just see the Father. The Son's not there. Well, we're going to see the Son as a lamb because, remember, Revelation has a reason for the revelation. What are these revelations pointing to? They're pointing to what God is doing. Why is Jesus not introduced here? Because he's going to get introduced as a solution to the judgment of the earth. The lamb is going to take the throne of, uh, go to the throne and take the scroll from the Father and bring judgment. But then he is going to be on that throne, be worshipped on that throne, and the kingdom ends right here, the, or the kingdom you could say begins rather, but the book of Revelation ends with the Father and the Son ruling from the one throne as the Holy Spirit comes. Now, have I, um, have I got out the yarn yet and the little cork board and the, and the thumbtacks? I haven't even, you know, I, I haven't even got started here trying to connect this all together. But remember, remember what we just read here in Revelation or what I'm skipping ahead to here, that we see the one on the throne and these four living creatures around the throne are going to be calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that's just supposed to settle it. There's one person on the throne. That's it. There it is. You know, your Jehovah Witness friend showed you that. But what am I doing here? I'm taking you to Isaiah 6 to show you that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Clearly, we know that there's not two lords, right? And then here we got creatures, six wings. We're going to learn about all of them just in Revelation. So I'm just skipping ahead so you can see this. And then what are they calling out to that person on the throne? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now watch this when we go to the book of John. Who did Isaiah see according to the book of John, chapter 12, verse 41? Who do you all think, who do you think he saw? Jesus, look at it. Now look at here, verse 1. Did I just tap on that? Of course I did. Let's see if I can go back there. I literally just tapped on the wrong verse. Where is that back button? Oh, man, I'm sorry, brothers. Uh, go, let's see, can I go back here? Oh, perfect. Now go to John chapter 12, verse 41, and look at who Isaiah saw. Look at this. John, the author of the book, is going to tell us, Isaiah said this, these prophecies. So the book of Isaiah was written because Isaiah saw whose glory? Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now when we go to Isaiah 6, Whose glory is the one that he sees? He sees the Lord. He sees his glory filling the temple. So now, are there two lords? 
Are there two gods? Are there two Yahwehs? No. Are there two thrones? No. There is one God, one Yahweh revealed in two persons, the Father and the Son, and we'll also see the Holy Spirit there. So now, going back to our notes, let's start right here from the beginning. He says, from the throne, one throne, came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. So now we see that there's the spirits of God there represented in these different attributes. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass. Clear as crystal, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Now, what do, I, what do you think I believe those eyes are? What do you think I believe they are? Eyes. That's what I believe they are, okay? There are people who want to tell you all day long what the eyes are. It symbolizes all their wisdom. It's the Wi-Fi or the cameras or something on them, you know? They're the Wi-Fi of heaven, sending out satellite signals. I believe that creatures can be made however God wants them to be made. If you, right now as a young person, some of these young people here are probably doing this, designing things or getting into school, learning how to code video games. If you wanted to make a creature that had eyes all over it, how long would it take? Not very long, just put eyes all over it. You know, uh, how do those creatures get the ability to see? They get the ability to see because God gave them the, the ability to see. How do you get the ability to see? Okay, so the same way you get the ability to see with two eyes, they get the ability to see with a whole bunch of eyes. There's nothing contradictory about this. This is just because we haven't seen a creature that looks like this. Have you ever seen creatures before that haven't looked like other creatures, you know? Have you ever looked at a new creature that you saw on a TV show or something? You're like, wow, that's a weird-looking creature. But how many know it was there before you ever saw it? Okay, and how many know that creature might be looking at you thinking you're weird? Okay. So God gave us creatures. God gave us on earth, and he made some in heaven. So there they are. Now they're going to have these different faces. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Now, in uh, Ezekiel, we learn that they are four-sided, four-faced creatures. So sometimes people think there are two different kinds of creatures. There's the ones that are mentioned in Ezekiel. Uh, just go here, my brother, to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 5, that have four sides to their face. They think that's one creature. And then these are another set of creatures who just have the one face that the other ones have on all four sides. Now, I like to put both ideas together and say they are the same creature, but we're only seeing one side of each one's face in Revelation. But in Ezekiel, we see chapter 1, verse 5, please. We see in Ezekiel that they have all the different sides. Does everybody get where I'm going with there? How many really care about these creatures right now? Okay, like four of you, for the four or five of you who really care about these creatures, they're there right now, okay? They're a little hurt by the rest of you not caring about them. Like, they really care about this right now. Am I a four, like, they want to know, do you believe they're a four-faced creature or a one-faced creature? They really want you to know, okay? Here's the same understanding of the throne of God, but this time the throne of God is coming down and meeting with Ezekiel, and it's coming down with fire. This is where the ancient aliens get their, uh, you know, the, the history channel gets their stuff from because the wheels within the wheels are UFOs, man, and all this stuff going on here. No, but really, I just believe chariots of fire are chariots of fire, okay? I believe that's what it is. It's a chariot, and guess what it has? 
fire. <laughs> That's what I believe, okay? Now, there's others of you who could think that the chariot of fire is just their way of describing a UFO and that Jesus really has a UFO. You can think that, but I don't think that, okay? But just notice here, verse 6 of chapter 1 of Ezekiel. This is how his vision is starting. But each one of them had how many faces? Four faces and four wings. The other ones were told to have six wings. But maybe he didn't see the other two wings, right? And just like in Revelation, maybe he doesn't see that they all have different faces uh, going there. Now, once again, if you want to believe there is a four-faced, four-winged creature and then a one-faced, six-winged creature, that is awesome. And if you want to debate it, what do you have to do? You have to take me where? The Red Lobster, and we can debate whether or not they are two separate creatures or just one description that doesn't say everything about them. And if you put them together, you get the description of who these creatures are. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Beautiful. This is telling us the eternality of our God, and these creatures are there worshiping him night and day, and we will learn that the Lamb is in that throne as well. So the Father, Son, and Spirit all being worshiped. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Now, I still believe that those elders are there because I believe the 12 complete the New Testament age, and those are the apostles, and they've already passed away. But remember, I believe that as we get further into this, we're going to see the churches there. We're going to see that all the nations are there, and so I believe this is forward thinking as well. But if you want to know literally what's happening just right now, literally before all the church is there, most of the church, I think, is there, and uh, you know the elders are there, and the creatures are around his throne. They lay down their crowns rather, before the throne and say, this is what the elders now say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. How many can say amen to that? Amen. Thank you. Now let's just go to John chapter 1, once again to remind us that we, we're pretty sure that's the Father, even though it doesn't say it's the Father, but we're pretty sure that's the Father because the Lamb's going to be introduced in the next chapter. We know the Holy Spirit is there, but just to remind folks how we know Jesus has to be equal with the Father, look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we just learned that He is, uh, He was, He is, and He is to come. Is G, uh, the Father is. Is the Word eternal like the Father? Yes, because before time began, the Word is with God. But is He separate from God in His nature? No, He is God in His nature. But He's not the same person as the Father, but He's the same nat nature as the Father. I am not the same person as Joselito, but Joselito and I both share the same nature. We, as a human race, all share the nature of humanity. In the God race, in the God kind, there's only three persons that share the nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, here's another evidence. So he's eternal like the Father, and we showed you that in Isaiah with John. But let's go on with this idea of through him, 
the creation comes, and through him all things have their being. Remember here that he created all things. How many things did the one sitting on the throne create? Okay, all things. And by them, how many have their being? All By him, how many have their being? All things have their being by him. So let's go to John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, oh, come on, all things were made. So from Jesus, how many things were made? All things. If Jesus was made, could all things be made through him? No, because one thing would have to not be made. Him. So the word couldn't be all. It would have to be all other things. Through him, all other things were made. So is Jesus the first created thing that God uses to create all the other things? Or is he like the Father, God, creator of all things? Creator of all things. Through Jesus, and we also know in Genesis 1-1, the Spirit is there. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, rather. The Spirit is there. So through the Father, through the Son, through the Holy Spirit, all things were made. Without Him, referring to Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. So once again, just pointing back to the centrality of Jesus, just because He's not mentioned here, He's mentioned in the next chapter as a lamb, because remember, He took on that nature as a lamb, humankind, to die for our sins. That's how Revelation is going to portray Him now in that, in that scene. At the beginning, He's right there with the Father in full glory, but now he's going to show us his lamb nature, which he still has, you know, as a man, but he's going to show us how he was wounded, how he took on our sins, and that he then, because of that, can bring judgment, and it's going to end with him in full uh, glory, full power, and authority. But right now, uh, John is seeing it being built up, that here's the magnificence of the Father and the Spirit, and the Son is the one who had to take on the nature of a lamb, mankind, as we know that what, what that means, are taking on flesh, so that we can, we can die. And then once again, when we see the lamb, what do you think I think John sees up there? A lamb, like I think John sees a lamb. That doesn't mean Jesus is a lamb, like he's, he's, he's shifting, shape-shifting in front of us. Boop, lamb, then boop, something else. But just remember them, the Father, Son, and Spirit shifting in, in, in their bodily form is not a big deal because the Bible says in Luke that the Holy Spirit came in bodily form like a what? Like a dove. Does that mean the Holy Spirit is a dove flying around heaven right now? Because the Holy Spirit takes on bodily form as fire. Does that mean he's fire? Does that mean he takes on the bodily form of, of water? Does that mean he's water? No. These, we know, give us the understanding of what they are, uh, what they're doing. So uh, I do believe that when we see the river, we'll see the Holy Spirit in the form of a river. But that doesn't mean that's all he is, is a river of life. It just means that's how he's flowing. And I believe when we see the lamb, I believe that's Jesus. You're looking at him. You're seeing him as a lamb. But that's not all he is. Can I get an amen to that? Okay, so that's chapter 4. I think we're all good there. How many are ready for the chart? Somebody say, I'm ready. Woo, let's do it. 20 minutes for the chart. Here we go. We're going to go through all of it right here. 
Uh, thank John Hagee for this. You can read or rather um, listen to, you can read his books, but you can listen to his sermon series on this. Hope that you enjoy it. I, I think most of it's okay. I don't disagree with my, really any of it, just a little bit here and there. And then the different views like I talked about. On the notes as well, you guys can track along with me, so I'm just going to zoom in here. Let's go through what we've already been through, and then we'll kind of look to the future right here. So we started the book of Revelation with seeing the seven spirits of God, the churches, and what God had to say about that. That's where we have been. Now we just read chapter 4, which I believe is the rapture. That's what I think is happening right here. This right here we believe is the rapture. Chapter 5, we're going to learn about Jesus, his role as the lamb, like I was just sharing with you. And then Jesus, as the lamb, is now going to take the scroll out of the Father's hands and open up the judgments, open some whoop hiney on the earth, okay? Why does he get to whoop some hiney on the earth? Because he's the lamb slain. God justly could have done it any way he wanted, but he chose to do it through mercy. I know this may sound crazy, but the judgment of God is actually mercy. Why? Because it's not for everybody. If God didn't judge anybody, he would be unjust. If a judge lets everybody go, they're unjust. But if a judge makes a way for the criminals to make it right and then says, everybody who doesn't want to make it right, then I will judge, that judge, that's the judge's priority. The judge could judge everybody, right? Judging no one is not, a, it's not an option for a good judge. How many believe that? Okay, but giving redemption is good. And then saying, now if you don't, you're going to get judged. Because I'm not going to let it slide. i got to do something about this. But here's my way out. You know, maybe community service, et cetera. But what we're going to learn in the Bible is God says, my way out is through my son. And that's why he's a lamb slain. And so whoever comes to him doesn't get this. And that's why we go to the other scripture that, that the Bible says, he did not prepare, uh, he did not uh, rather ordain us for wrath. The Bible says also that he did not destine us for wrath, that he wishes all to be saved, none to perish. And so this is the destiny of wrath. This is literally the preparation of wrath. So I don't think God prepared, uh, I keep saying the word prepared, which could be used, but the, the Bible actually says that predestined in there. I don't think God predestined his church to go through his wrath. That isn't his plan. There can be Christians that will be saved during this wrath because the wrath is going to go like this. The wrath is going to go with the seven seals, then the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Those three sevens are going to destroy over a third of the earth, a third of mankind. It is going to go really, really bad for them. Why would Christ go through all the trouble of redeeming us from the curse, saving us, taking judgment off of us, and then have us go through the entire destruction of the world. I just don't think that's part of his plan. That's why as I've gotten more older in this, I tend to see it as pre-tribulation because that sounds like a good father to me. That sounds like what Jesus is talking about. I've gone to prepare a place for you because that, you know, the people who believe in the post-tribulation, that doesn't make any sense because this only makes sense that he's gone to prepare a place for us if we need a place to be for the next seven years. Uh, if, this is, if this is just a turnaround, you know, uh, we've gone through all the tribulation. We've lost a third of everybody we love. We've lost a third of our drinking water. We've watched it all turn to hell on earth. And then, and then he, comes, uh, he comes down just to beam us up to come right back down in a split second. Then wh what were the mansions for? What was the marriage supper for? What was all of that for? And the Bible says, no, he's gone to prepare a place for us. He's going to take us to be with him. Remember, Thessalonians says we go to be with him. We don't start, instantly start ruling and reigning. So I believe that 
the blessing of the church, like I said, that this is representative of mercy to us, is that we're celebrating with the Lord in heaven with him. Like, like I've talked about before, like medieval times. Anybody know about that? You go there, you watch them joust and sword fight, and you're just sitting there eating. You're chilling. They're dying. They're, you know, oh, he falls off his horse and all that. That's going to be you. You're not going to be feeling sorry for the earth at this time, okay? You're going to be like, all right, God, send down some more. Are you the next angel going? I can't wait to see what you do. And then this angel's like right here, well, my job is to throw the censers from the altar down to earth. All right, I want to see you do that, man. Oh, that's a good one. I honestly think we're on the winning side. Like we're literally watching Goliath get defeated over and over and over again, okay? Because remember, when Goliath got defeated, the people of God weren't feeling sorry for him. And I know this is kind of you know, like juxtaposing or feeling opposite of what we feel now as Christians because we mourn for the lost, we weep for them, we intercede for them. But that is in the church age. That is because we believe God is being merciful with them and we want to represent that mercy upon the earth. But mercy now turns into judgment. And so just like how you've wept for the lost, you've cried for the lost, you're now going to be cheering as the lost are destroyed. You are because it's a different age. The age of watching them try to turn and change is now over. There will be some very few that will be saved during this time. 144,000 Jewish evangelists will go out and start winning some to the Lord. But there's not going to be this wide variety uh, you know, of, of revival going on. It's going to be very, very scarce. And it's going to be very dark upon the earth. And you're going to want that judgment to come. Okay. So going back to this, we're right here at the rapture time where Christ is, I believe, going to pull us off into his presence. That's what we're waiting for. That's the next thing on the timeline for us is to come up here. Once that happens... Somewhere around that time, the Antichrist is going to unify the world government leaders together. How have people proposed this, that they're going to put it on aliens and that there's something going on in the culture and society that because all of these people have left and they're left behind, that there now, now needs to be one unified world government. We can almost see that now going on with COVID, all the governments trying to work together, share the lockdowns, you know, oppress the people. In certain nations like the Philippines, democracies became dictatorships overnight. Those are just these sad stories that are happening around the world right now, people seizing power. We even saw that with people like our mayor and then the BLM riots, like taking advantage of that. And so you can see... Uh, as, a prob as like a probable way this can happen is the Antichrist is one of the United Nation leaders. He's coming somewhere out of Rome, which we'll get into that further when we get into the book, the seven-hilled city. That's why people sometimes, you know, when, when we talk about the, uh, the idea that it was actually fulfilled during the time of the Romans, there's reasons to believe that because a lot of stuff is happening in Rome. So what we believe, it's the revised Roman Empire. Everybody say revised. But there is a seven-hill city that's called Mystery Babylon that's ruling the nations. And so that is Rome, the seven-hilled city. And out of that seven-hilled city is a woman, a whore as she is called, or a prostitute, if you have a nice, nicer translation. But the King James said it's the whore of Babylon. I believe that's the Roman Catholic Church. I believe that the Roman Catholic Church and all of this ecumenicalism that they've been doing over the years, now even saying that atheists can go to heaven, praying in mosque. I mean, just look at some of the redonkulous things the, the current pope has done and the one before him. I believe that is the seat of the power of Satan, okay? So what we're going to see is 
a whole lot of uh, stuff from heaven. But just by any chance I'm wrong and we're here, just know when the world unites and makes Christianity illegal, we're in a lot of trouble, okay? Just uh, like the Bible literally says, head for the hills. It's time now to go to that commune. It's time for you to learn how to knit, ladies, men. It's time for you to learn how to hunt because it's about ready to get wild in these cities. Now, all you need to do to be a good cult member is just convince everybody we're in that time now and go move out to the commune and convince them to share your wives with you, etc. But remember... When you hear, there he is or there he is, the Bible says, don't go out to them. Don't listen to them. When the Bible starts saying, I mean, when these people start saying, I know he's coming or I know that he told us to go do this, he's going to go meet us out in the desert or he's going to go meet us there. That is the sign of a false Christ or a false prophet. So don't listen to them. So once again, we get raptured. The next major event after the rapture is the rise of the Antichrist. Now, during that time, the Lamb takes the scroll and begins to open the scroll by opening these seven seals. The first of the seven seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's where you hear about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They come up right there. And then the judgments begin to happen. There's an interval between the sixth and the seventh seal. And then the seventh seal ends with fire being cast upon the earth. And then pretty much right after that, we go into the seven trumpets. Now, some people who are mid-tribulation, they take the seventh trumpet to be the trumpet that we heard about in Thessalonians, but it doesn't say which trumpet it is. And there's many, many trumpets in the Bible, some just announcing a change of season or announcing times of war. So some, like I said, they have good points. I've never really been convinced of mid-trib, but if they had any point, this would be it. That the trumpet they're talking about is this, uh, that, that Thessalonians is talking about is this trumpet, the silence in heaven because the church has left, everyone is gathered together around the throne, we're silent because all of the bowls are about ready to come and the bowls are the great tribulation happening in the last three and a half years. If I forgot to mention, the whole period is seven years, three and a half years divided in half, three and a half years. This first half is considered the tribulation and then the last half is considered the great tribulation. So the mid-tribbers take that trumpet that we read about in Thessalonians to be the trumpet that we come up to heaven to be with Christ. The silence is there because we're going to be, uh, uh, you know, watching this next uh, trans these next seven bowls come down, and those seven bowls are really the worst of the worst. Now, between the trumpets and the bowls, we are now taken back into history and shown a kind of a panoramic view of world history. This is where I was talking about, like if you follow Revelation and you're just thinking it's going down a timeline of this happens, then this happens, then this happens, you'll get thrown off right here around uh, what chapter, yeah, chapter 12, when you learn about the woman surrounded by 12 stars, giving birth to a son, being chased by a dragon. How many have read that before? Sounds very interesting. Here's where our Catholic friends go off the rails, and they say that this is Mary, this is the queen of heaven, because she gives birth to Jesus, and that somehow, even though 
That would be okay if they believe that. But then now somehow that means she has a special place in heaven for us to pray for her because she's surrounded by the 12 stars. No, this is Israel. Israel is the woman throughout the entire scriptures from the Song of Solomon to the times of the prophets. And the 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, once again, if you just want to take it literally, like I've been doing on most things and say, that's got to be Mary, Mary's still an Israelite, and you still don't pray to Mary, you don't do anything with Mary, okay? But the reason why when I enter here and we get to learn about these people, I take everything symbolically and not literally like, hey, Joe, I thought you, when you saw a lamb, you saw a lamb and all of that. You saw a door, you saw a door. Because these things are now symbolic. The heads on the, uh, the dragon represent nations. Uh, the beast comes from the sea and then has crowns. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, like now at this point, they're describing the Antichrist, the world governments, the nations. And so what we call the seven personages are all represented of either nations or people. So you could still you could still take Mary there. Some Protestants do, but once again, it doesn't mean she's the queen of heaven needing prayer. I just take her as the nation of Israel. I take the, the seven nations there with the seven-headed beast as the coming together of the, the 12 world government and the Antichrist is controlling like seven of them at that time and then he conquers some others. So that's how I take it. And then when we come here, we see the uh, satanic trinity, which is the dragon, the beast, and then the other beast. Uh, there are two beasts that are mentioned, the false prophet and then the Antichrist and the dragon. And the dragon possesses the beast and gives the false prophet power to give to the Antichrist, and that's where the Antichrist gets shot in the head, which it seems like there's an assassination attempt and mimics the resurrection of Jesus. So he's anti-Jesus. He's like trying to do everything Jesus can do. These three angels preach the gospel. They kind of circle the globe. They do some cool things. And then here comes, <laughs> here comes now the bowls of wrath. Everybody say the bowls of wrath. Seven angels bring seven bowls of wrath. And this, no matter which way you look at it, is going to be the most devastation the earth has ever known. And sometimes, like I said, the post-tribulation folks, they try to say, well, you know, if God could keep the Jews safe during the wrath upon the Egyptians, then he can keep the Christians safe upon the earth while the judgment is coming. That's their one argument to try to get us to think like, yeah, maybe we could make it through this because the Bible says like no one who is a Christian at this time is going to be given these punishments. And so God's going to spare them. But if you just think about this, this is, if that happens, first of all, I'll be ready to, to live for Jesus. How am I going to live for Jesus no matter what season you're in? How many, if you see angels coming down with bowls of wrath, you're still living for Jesus? Amen. How many know that's not the time to quit living for Jesus? That's not when you quit. That's definitely when you keep living for him. When you see the angel coming, you're like, oh, man, number three, you coming hard right now. You bringing blood everywhere. Okay, okay, let's go into the storm shelter again, kids. You know, I got the mark. The Bible says because they are going to get marked by God. I, that's going to be kind of crazy too, but it's going to be cool crazy because they've gotten this technological mark. The, the sinners have. They can't buy or sell without it. We've talked about that before. But the Christians at that time get marked. So I don't know. We all wake up. Instead of having a stimulus check, you're glowing on your forehead that I belong to Jesus. But however it happens during that time, you get marked. But trust me, nobody is going to care. It's going to be so satanic at that time. There's going to be so many. There's going to be demons literally 
actually manifesting themselves. That's why I believe a lot of this alien stuff is preparing for that. Like, instead of, like, demons showing up every now and then, and maybe when you're on a bad trip or something happened in your life, like, or they, you know, they abduct a person and pretend to be an alien. Like, at this time, like, there's not going to be any playing around. It's like, there's a polyon. There he goes. He's just going to be marching down the street. And once again, there's nothing, there's nothing illogical about that. That's not, like, square circle stuff. Like, this is totally logical. Because, once again, a horse walks down the street. Have you ever seen a horse? That horse looks very strange, and the horse just walks right on down the street. Four legs. You know, you ever seen a cow? Cow looks weird. All types of things look weird and walk around. You're going to be seeing demons and leaders of demons on the earth. But we're, but not say we, but the Christians, who I believe who have been left behind, who have, are there, they're going to be small in number. It's almost like you're watching a Marvel, you know, thing where, like, they have taken over, and you're just kind of, like, chilling. They just haven't got to kill you yet because they're looking for us, but then they're going to be distracted by all this. So once again, my friends who say, who are post-tribulation, oh, well, God can keep us safe. Yeah, he can, but that is, that's a sad story because how little of us is there going to be? You know what I'm saying? I mean, if a third of the earth is dying and all of this is happening and there's still enough food for us uh, and there's still stuff going on, there's probably like, like maybe 200,000 Christians on the planet at that time, you know? Like I just, I don't know. I just don't see how this is happening with a billion of us, two billion of us. And I just don't want to believe like we all backslide. Like because if we get to heaven and there's like less than a million, how many know that's going to be a little bit disappointing? I mean, you're still happy to be there. You're not, how many are still staying? You'd be like, yeah, I'm a little disappointed. I thought there'd be more, but definitely I'm staying. Like, I'm not going back to be with the one I thought would be here, but that's why I let you know I thought there'd be more going on here. Because I know we're not Mormons having sex, making more babies up here, okay? We're not, we're not inhabiting our own planets and women have being plural wives up here. I know we're done. We're done procreating, so is this it? Okay, but I'm still staying, but I was a little disappointed in the number. I, because the Bible says like, there's this vast number in heaven. Remember, it's always in heaven. They're always up there, and it's a vast, vast ocean of people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. So doesn't that fit better, class? Come on. How many want to be pre-raptured with me? Doesn't that fit better? It fits better that the vast majority of us, we're already up there. And the hell on earth with the few who are just getting hunted down and beheaded and hiding in the cellar and watching all the demons on the earth and all these things that are happening, that is the minority of the people, okay? So that's why I personally believe the seven bowls of wrath. And then after the seven bowls of wrath, mystery Babylon is judged. Uh, the marriage supper of the lamb. Some See, he believes it starts there. I believe it's completed there um, in heaven, and then we continue it after Armageddon on the earth. So I believe it's a two-part dinner, like a five-part course, you know. Uh, once again, if we're going to argue about the marriage supper of the lamb, what do you have to do? Take me to Red Lobster. I'm just programming your brain for that today. No, half kid, half kid. Okay, and then the judgment comes to the beast. The Antichrist, the false prophet, the church comes down with Christ. So once again, pre-trib, we've been in heaven this whole time. Mid-trib, you came out around, uh, you know, this time right here in that interval, uh, around that time. And then post-trib, there you go. You get to leave at the last second. You know, once again, you'd be a little bit disappointed. You'd be happy like, okay, finally, 
Thank you, Jesus. I have just watched the entire earth get destroyed, Jesus. I'm, I'm happy you're coming for me now. But how many know the mansion is up there? The mansion is not down there. He said very clearly, I have gone to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. Where is the Father's house? Not on earth. The Father's house is in heaven. He says, there are many rooms or many mansions. So that's why I believe we're up there. It, it is, I mean, come on, let's use like how we would understand here. It is the resort of heaven. We go up there, we're, we're in the resort, we're enjoying that time together. There are some times we get around the throne, watch the angels throw down the fiery stuff, but, but the other times, you know, we're enjoying our time in that mansion. We do not have to suffer the wrath of God with the sinners. That's just something I believe. And so maybe even by the end of the series, I might get up to 55% pre-rapture, uh, pre-tribulation, and 60, 70. Maybe by the end of this, I'll be writing a book like John Hagee, I'll be preaching with him. I'm like, anybody who believes the other things are wrong and they're stupid and I'm smart and then I'll start reading about, uh, learning about blood moons and putting that together and calling out who I think the Antichrist is and then you'll leave the church and then I'll be all by myself and then a new group of people will come and then this is a weird story, when will it stop? No, I'm kidding. We've been waiting for a person to tell us everything in the Bible exactly the way it is. Because how many know that there's a feeling like people get when it comes to prophecy? Like, like you almost want the pastor to pretend like he knows it all. Just so you could be like, ah, oh, I feel so much better. You've just told me everything that I could possibly ever know. You know it all. Now I know it all. Everything is so amazing. But is that the way Jesus makes it sound about the end times? No, he's like, I'm coming back like a thief in the night. Most people are probably not even going to be ready. Even in the church, they're not going to be ready. So we have to make sure that we don't fall for this false security. Though I do believe he's given us enough that we can have a basic timeline. And I, I really do I believe in this. I don't think there's a lot of stretching here. I think as we go through the rest of, you know, the book, I mean, we just really got started. But as, as you see as an overview, because I'll have this up every week, I think that we have a lot to go on. And then, you know, we're coming now with Christ and uh, the, the saints of old, the New Testament saints, Old Testament saints. We rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. This is where we see all the prophecies of Isaiah come true. If you read the book of Isaiah and you try to smuggle it in to what they call the church age, it really doesn't work. Because my friends who don't believe in a literal thousand years, they think we're in the time where the lion lays with the lamb because the lion laying with the lamb is symbolic of something. What do you think I think the lion laying with the lamb is? The lion lays with the with a lamb. That's what I honestly think it is. If you take that as symbolic, then what's the point of even mentioning all the other things that are happening, that we're all going to Jerusalem, that the, the kings of the earth are bringing their tributes, that you're ruling and reigning over the nations. Like, I just don't get it, because for 2,000 years, they thought we've been here, and then somehow at the last couple of years, we all just start to really get it together, and then Jesus comes back. I just don't see it. I see it actually getting worse in a lot of ways. The, you know, you look at the world, it's turning darker, it's turning more wicked. And as this is happening, I don't see us uh, staying here and figuring it out, honestly. I feel like the only one that can stop this is God. So I believe in a literal thousand-year reign. That means when Christ has come back, he has put the devil 
into the lake of fire with the false prophet and all those from Armageddon and the third of the earth that's been destroyed, uh, you know, the third of the uh, population who was serving the Antichrist. Boom, they're there. We're up here serving God. Like we're kings and queens unto the Lord in his kingdom. We're ruling and reigning. And now here's a question sometimes people bring up because, because in Isaiah, it says there's sacrifices in that new kingdom. And so what do I think the sacrifices are? Real sacrifices. But now watch. In the Old Testament, they did sacrifices looking toward the death, burial, and resurrection. In the, the new temple, this will be the third temple, with Christ being there, what are the, te- what are the temple sacrifices? Looking back towards the, uh, the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus. So they won't be for our forgiveness. And if you really understand it, it wasn't for their forgiveness back then. It was always a type and a shadow. So I do believe the memorial sacrifices will be reinstituted. We may uh, be following Jewish law. I'm not sure about that. That that's, goes back and forth. Uh, we will be doing things on the Sabbath. We'll be celebrating feast days. Now, right here, you have this kind of what we call uh, Jewish restoration movement that gets all excited when we talk like this, and they go, well, if we're going to be keeping Sabbath in the millennial reign, and we're going to be keeping Jewish law in the millennial reign, why don't we keep Jewish law now? Because we're not in that covenant. That's why. Because Jesus told us that we didn't have to. That's the whole point. He said he called all foods clean and that all days were alike through Paul. Why does it change from the new covenant to that? I don't think it's a change in covenant, but I think it's a change in age. There is a third literal temple on the earth. We don't have one now where God himself is present. And you can't do any of that stuff without God present in his temple. They can try, but it's all religion right now. It's dead. And so for me, when God is literally in his temple, he can tell us to do whatever he wants wants in his temple. How many believe he can do that? If he says, hey, start, uh, strike up the Barbie again, how many are going to be cool with that? And if he says, hey, you know what? I don't want you to eat f- sh- shellfish anymore. There's no more lobster here. How many are cool with that? Like, I'm cool with however he does it. But he may have a blended, everybody get this, he may have a blended rule in order from the old and the new in that new temple with the sacrifice. How many know the same one who gave us the different laws can do that again? He can say, in this temple, you, sacri- you, know, you sacrifice this and you eat that. It, there is a lot of unknowns there, but this does not send us back to the law today for righteousness sake. Because even in the millennial reign, however he rules us, that does not change what he has told us to do now in the church age. The church age is for us to get the gospel out, for us not to focus on the Jewish laws, to focus on Christ fulfilling the laws because we're not in a Jewish state. The Jewish state is restored there. Does everybody get that? Okay, one person gets it. It's hot up here. Let me try this again as I turn on the fan. A little embarrassed that only one person gets it. It was either only one person got it or only one person heard me ask the question. How many understand the millennial reign will be ruled by Christ through Jerusalem and whatever laws he establishes? Okay, amen. It will resemble a lot of the old covenant, though it's not the old covenant. It will have resemblance of the new covenant, but it's not going to be entirely the way we do things in the church age. The new covenant is more than just the church age. Let me just say it that way. We don't go into a new covenant. I'm not teaching a third covenant like the Mormons teach. I am teaching today there's only two covenants. But in the new covenant, God can have varieties of laws and outworking of those laws. After the thousand-year reign, then is the great white throne judgment according to Revelation 
chapter 20, 15, the, the judgment happens there for the sinners because now they had to watch all of this because at this point, hell is in the middle of the earth. God allows them. I mean, can you imagine this? You and I are having the time of our life while you get to look at the pit in which the devil, his angels are in, and those who have rejected Christ. If the ones who we now see persecuting us have not forsaken their sin, you will be surfing with Jesus, fishing with Jesus, whatever you like to do with Jesus, and they will be there watching you. This is to, for God's glory, for them to see his goodness. I know that sounds like, like Jesus is messing with his haters, and he is, but it's like, you're going to watch me with my kids. You're going to watch me have a good time. No, no, watch me do this. And then after the thousand-year reign, they are thrown out of his presence. Now, he will still sustain them in the eternal torment to which they go to, but they will not be in his immediate presence. And then he recreates the heavens and the earth where the book literally ends. And let's go right here to Revelation chapter 22. Good brothers in the back, please. And now, Vinny, would you come? He then ends the book saying, this is now where you are. You're on a new earth with the new heavens. And some people call it the restored Garden of Eden, and that's a great way to look at it. But it is different from the Garden of Eden in some important ways. Uh, number one, in the Garden of Eden, we were made to procreate. As you see there, Eden restored, but it's not exactly like Eden. In Eden, we were made to procreate. There is no more procreation now. We're like the angels, if you remember that. Also, in Eden, there was night and day, and there were seasons. There are no more seasons. There's no more night. There's only day. In the Garden of Eden, the universe didn't look like the way it does now where things were not all being occupied. The planets, the stars, for whatever reason, they were made as they are now. In the kingdom of God, these uh, planets are not darkened by the matter of space. So there is no darkness anywhere. I don't know what that looks like because all when I think about the universe, I think of a lot of dark space and then things popping out in between. But uh, the best imagination that I can come up with is when we're on the new earth, no sun, nothing but light, no darkness, will we, uh, what, I, what I think about, will we be able to see the other planets and then be able to interact with them and visit them? I don't know. Will there even be any other planets or are we just going to chill here? I do know this, that New Jerusalem is going to be about 144 miles up in the air. And remember, the atmosphere now is totally different, and also we're in glorified bodies. So it will be up into the atmosphere, and it's going to be like 144 miles wide and high, and we will live there. So we're all going to live in this New Jerusalem. And if you see how big it is, it's humongous. Like when they put it, like when people have done it with a, um, like a rendition and put it on a globe, the entire Christian population in the Old Testament saints, we could fit there, okay? And we're going to live there, and that's how the Bible ends. It says that the river of life is going to flow, flow from the throne of God and of the Lamb, that there's not going to be any more sun, that God himself is the sun. We're going to rule and reign with him forever. That's literally how it ends right there. Uh, sorry for that last part. And then it says here that what we're going to do, uh, what we're supposed to do now is testify to Jesus Christ coming. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So remember, at the end of the book of Revelation, it starts just like it began, with Jesus. And so now we're looking at Jesus in heaven, soon to judge. All of these things are going to happen. But our hearts should still remain the same and say, come, Jesus. 
I believe when we're saying come Jesus today, we're saying come do all of this stuff and restore the earth. So be careful what you pray for. How many want Jesus to come? It's, a, it's an obedient command. You're supposed to pray, come Lord Jesus. But what does that look like? It looks like judgment upon the earth. Can we stand up and give it up for Jesus? Amen. The one that we want to see come. Band and altar workers, would you come please? Without judgment. Come for prayer. Come for love and mercy. If you're here today and you don't want to be here for all of this, and you want to be raptured for that, come and get Jesus in your life today. He wants to be the Lord and Savior. He wants to change you. If you have any questions about this, you can email me at lawrenceyinski at mpichurch.org. Half kid. If you want to have a late discussion about this after service, you may talk to Vicente. Vicente would love to start that Red Lobster discussion with you. Father, we thank you today that your word gives us revelation about the person of Jesus. And oh, Father, we do want him to come. But before he comes, we pray for the nations to be saved. We pray that we'll be obedient to preach the gospel so that we can see North Korea transform China, India, places in the Middle East that are persecuting your saints right now. Oh, Lord, have mercy on this land before you judge it, oh God. We pray for our city. We pray for our leaders, our politicians, that, oh God, they would repent and that there would be a revival upon our land starting in Chicago, oh God. Even your own heart right now, would you examine it if you're not right with God as I pray for the nations in our city. Lord, I lift up to you, God, all those who don't know you. We know judgment is coming, oh God, but we pray for that heavenly house to be filled with the saints from this earth, even those who may not know you now. Help us to do our part to go out and win the elect unto you, O Lord, to go out and preach to those, God, you have prepared a place in heaven for. God, you wish that none would perish. Come on, pray, saints, if not for yourself, for others. Do I believe that God knows who's going to be in heaven? Yes, but he still gives them a choice. We pray that every man, woman, and child will make that choice to be with Christ. Choose you this day whom you will serve, Joshua said. Lord, we know your judgment upon this earth will be swift. We know that it will be righteous. Oh, God. But we pray for this ark to be filled. As I'm praying right now, one of the witnesses to how I believe God will bring us through is like the ark. The ark kept the people of God safe even in the midst of the judgment. And so whatever tribulation path we're taking, I know God's going to keep us safe. But I truly believe that he needs us in that, or that we need to be in that ark to be raptured before it. So get, get in the ark of Christ today, friends. Get in the ark of Christ. Don't wait till it's too late. Lord, help us to keep you in our hearts, on our minds. And in our vision of all that we do, that you're coming quickly. You're coming soon. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Somebody shout, Maranatha. That means come.